Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Scripture Uncovered. Well, on Monday, we saw Saul of Tarsus have the most dramatic conversion in the whole history of the church. Saul, who hated Christ more than anyone ever did, suddenly just knocked to the ground by a flash of light. And now, what is Saul going to do? Saul is now a believer. I was teaching my classes at UCLA, and I was preparing a class on St. Paul in my English Bible as Literature class. And I, was, I had a lunch appointment with a, a good friend, a fellow faculty member, Michael Cohen. And I was in my office working on, uh, working on the lesson, and Michael came by, knocked on the door, and said, are you ready to go to lunch? I said, yep. He goes, oh, what are you working on? Oh, I'm giving, giving a talk on, on, on the Apostle Paul. And he said, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, once a fanatic, always fanatic. <laughs> and that's exactly right. As Saul fanatically persecuted the church, so will Saul fanatically promote the church. And that can get him into a lot of trouble, especially early on. We pick up our story in Acts chapter 9 with Saul in Damascus. Now Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, all those who heard him were astonished because Saul had gone to Damascus to round up these believers and take them back in chains to Jerusalem. And now he's speaking in the synagogues in Damascus with letters of introduction and delegated authority from the high priest. They heard him. They were astonished. Isn't he the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem among, among all those who call in his name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? What's going on here? Well, I don't know about you, but if I were one of the people in the synagogue, I'd be thinking, huh, we just let a fox into the hen house. Yet, Saul grew more and more powerful and his arguments, his, his rhetorical abilities baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Saul of Tarsus knew his scriptures, his Hebrew scriptures, inside and out, backward and forward. And he could reach back in scripture and he could build an argument. Oh, could he ever build an argument? Wait until we study St. Paul's epistles and letters. Romans is the first epistle in the canonical order. It was not the first one written. First Thessalonians probably was around AD 50. But Paul writes Romans in 57, shortly after he left Ephesus, and he writes it from Corinth. It is a brilliant work. In fact, in my online class now on St. Paul, we just started a detailed study of Romans. Romans is a brilliant, brilliant work. Just extraordinary. It's been said 
that St. John Chrysostom had Romans read to him twice a week, every week. The English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge called it the most profound writing that exists. And I have to tell you right now that Paul didn't write Romans. He didn't. At the very end in chapter 16, when he says, by the way, say hello to these people I know in Rome, 29 people, a third of whom are women who are leaders in the church at Rome, right about verse 16 of chapter 16, parenthetically we read, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, say hello too. So Paul didn't write Romans. Paul sat down with a glass of wine, called his secretary in and said, Tertius, take a letter. And Paul dictated Romans. That is extraordinary. What kind of mind can do that? Dictating Romans. It's a formal scholastic diatribe a type of rhetorical argument from classical rhetoric, and Paul knew every single move to make as he dictated that letter. He was an absolutely brilliant man. He grew more and more powerful. His rhetorical abilities, his speaking abilities, he baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ through rhetorical argumentation. Now, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers, I love this, his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. (laughs) Can you imagine? The city gates are shut tight. There's an all-points bulletin out for Saul of Tarsus, and his supporters, his followers, took him by night through the back alleys, quietly. And from the top of the wall, they lowered him in a basket. Imagine Saul of Tarsus, the great apostle Paul, in a laundry hamper, being lowered down the wall, swinging back and forth like a pendulum. And when he got to the ground, he pushed the lid off and he scampered off into the night with a sock hanging around his ear. (laughs) What a scene that makes. They lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And he headed right back to Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him. They didn't want anything to do with him. Last time he was here, he he murdered Stephen. They were afraid of him, not believing he was authentic. A, A fox in the hen house. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas, a man from Cyprus, a mature man, a man of intellect and reason a man of discernment. The other apostles were afraid of him. They they kept away from him. But Barnabas said, well, somebody has to find out. So Barnabas met with him. They talked. And after talking, Barnabas believed that Saul was authentic. And he brought him 
to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, if you were one of the apostles or one of the early followers, one of those persecuted by Saul of Tarsus, would you trust this guy? Uh, Barnabas vouched for him. I'm not too sure about him. Well, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, that is the non, the, the Jews from around the Roman Empire. They tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him home to Tarsus. They took him down to Caesarea Maritima, the deep water port built by Herod the Great, put him on board a ship and sailed him home to Tarsus on the southeastern coast, near the coast of modern-day Turkey. They sent him home. And then, <laughs> get this, then the church all throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. They got rid of Saul of Tarsus. First, he's persecuting the church, murdering Stephen, rounding people up to have them brought back to Jerusalem and, and, and jailed or killed. And now he is preaching the gospel. Whatever Saul did, he got in trouble. We'll see when he goes out on his missionary journeys. Paul's method was to go to the synagogue first, teach in the synagogue, get thrown out of the synagogue, and get beaten up, thrown in jail, and run out of town. Over and over again, we'll see that happen. So finally, they send him home from Jerusalem, and at last, there was a time of peace. He's gone. Everything settled down. Now there... The church grew in numbers, encouraged. It kept growing. Now, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic, who had been bedridden for eight years. Now Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who had lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Another extraordinary miracle worked through Peter. Now, in Joppa, down on the coast, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated, is Dorcas. Now, I think I would go by Tabitha and not Dorcas. I can imagine the nicknames that would come with that. But she was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. So Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, 
crying and wailing and showing him the robes and other clothing that, that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. All the, all the clothes for the, the little children and the poor people and all the good things she had done. Peter sent them all out of the room and then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand, helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. Well, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So Peter makes a long-term visit to Joppa. Joppa is another deep water port, an ancient one. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah's a prophet back in the 700s BC, and Jonah went, was told to go down to Joppa, uh, to go to Nineveh, and preach in Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the arch enemy at the time. He said, no, I'm not going, because I know if God tells me to go to Nineveh and I preach there, they're going to they're going to change and, and I, I, they'll be saved. And I don't want them to be saved. I want them all dead. So he went down to Joppa and he got on board a ship and he sailed west as far away as he could possibly get. He sailed to Tarshish. No one knows quite where that is. Probably in Spain. And you know what happened along the way. It's quite the fish tale. Well, Peter is a Joppa, an old port, and Joppa today is a very nice place uh, to visit. But at Caesarea Maritima, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. And one day at about three o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. So Cornelius is a centurion, that is, a Roman soldier in charge of 100 men. 100 men, a century of men. A Roman legion consists of 6,000 men, which then breaks down into smaller groups from a legion all the way down to a century. So Cornelius is very much like uh, perhaps a, a, a Marine Corps uh, major or light colonel. Well, here he was at Caesarea Maritima, about three o'clock in the afternoon, so he's, it's not late at night, he's not sleeping or dreaming. He distinctly saw an angel of God who said, Cornelius, and Cornelius stared at him in fear because every time you see an angel, the first thing they say is fear not, <laughs> right? You're afraid. They're magnificent, awesome creatures. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What, what, what is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Cornelius was a Gentile in the Italian regiment, but he was drawn to the God of Israel. 
at Caesarea Maritima. I'll bet he was one of the one of the Gentiles, the God-fearers, who would often go to synagogue. And he was a good man. He prayed, he gave to the poor, he helped out when he could. So everything you've done has come up as an offering to God. Now, I would like you to send men to Joppa, 30 miles south of Caesarea, and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel spoke to him and gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. Now, as I noted, Joppa is about 30 miles south of Caesarea, a one-day journey by adult men, particularly soldiers. They were expected to cover 30 miles per day in travel. So, a one-day journey. He told them everything that happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so they would have left after meeting with Cornelius, spent the night along the way, got up in the morning and headed, headed south again. So they were on their journey at about noon, and Peter went to the roof of Simon's house to pray. Back in those days, the typical architecture of a house, it was a house was built around a courtyard uh, with stairs that went up the side to the surrounding buildings and uh, with a flat roof. And particularly if you're down there by the water, it'd be nice to go sit up on the roof in your plastic lawn chair, look out at the, at the water, at the Mediterranean, pray, think, feel the, the sun on your face, hear the waves, the surf. And while he was there, it was about noontime, and Mrs. Simon the Tanner was down in the kitchen cooking lunch. She's making a meatloaf, I believe. And as Peter is on the roof, feeling the sun on his face, hearing the surf, his mind wandering a bit, he smelled the, the meatloaf cooking, the, the smell wafting upward. And he was hungry. He wanted something to eat. The meal was being prepared. And he fell into a trance. Now that's a, a maybe a misleading translation of the word. It's not like a spooky kind of trance, but no, it's a kind of reverie. I think we've all felt that if we've been to the beach during the summertime and lying on a blanket on the sand and we're not asleep, we hear the surf, we hear the people, children playing, maybe smell hot dogs cooking. And it's a kind of reverie. And he, he saw in this reverie heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. Now it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air, all kinds of different animals, both clean and unclean in Jewish terms. 
And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not I, Lord. Peter, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean in my life. Look at all, all those creatures in there. There, there are, there, there are there's snakes and lobsters and pigs. and I'm not getting anywhere near that. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Nope, not going to do it. Well, this happened three times. And immediately the sheet was then taken back to heaven. And Peter, oh, came out of this trance, uh, this reverie. And, and, and oh, what a strange thing to think about. Happened three times. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of all this, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, and they stopped at the gate. Hello, hello, they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Well, while Peter was thinking about this reverie, this vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them. I have sent them. So Peter went down, and sure enough, there they were. He said to the men, I, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? What do you, what do you want? And the men replied, We've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now think about this. Jews and Gentiles did not mix like oil and water. A Jew would ne never socialize with a Gentile. A Jew would never go into the home of a Gentile. A Jew would never date a Gentile. And a Jew would most certainly never marry a Gentile. The Israelite people, the Jewish people, were created. They weren't chosen. They're not God's chosen people. There were no Jews to choose. God chose Abraham and built Abraham into a people and gave the law in the Torah, the kosher laws, the laws of purity and impurity regarding food and other things. Why was something unclean? Why can you not eat pork? Why can you not eat shellfish? Well, there are good reasons, I suppose, but in the kosher laws, you're not to do it. I remember some time ago, team teaching a class with Rabbi Michael Marison. Uh, Michael was on my staff. And uh, he would teach individual classes, and also we would team teach periodically. And we were doing a class on, on a Wednesday night together down here in San Diego. And he would drive down from Orange County, and uh, we'd meet for dinner beforehand. And we met at a wonderful Italian restaurant uh, right in La Jolla. And 
we were sitting at the table together and we are talking and the waiter came over and, and went through the specials of that day. And one of the specials was black ink linguine with lobster, with a whole lobster tail on top. And I thought, I love black ink linguine and I love lobster. So I said, I, I believe I'll have that. And then Rabbi Michael said, I think I'll have that too. So the waiter left and I said, Michael, you, I didn't know lobster was kosher. He said, it's not. But, I'm sure, but it's really good. I'm sure God made a mistake on that one. <laughs> so we had, we had our pasta and, and, uh, and lobster and then went off to our class. But, uh, you know, why these laws that separated Jew from Gentile? The Jews have a unique role in God's plan of salvation to this very day. And the Jews were put out of Jerusalem in AD 70, put out of the land. With the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, the Jews were scattered across the world. There are Jews on, in, in every part of the globe. Anywhere you go, there'll be a Jewish community. There'll be a synagogue. And yet, the Jews are only about one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. But they don't assimilate. Anybody else, any other group of people who moved from where they are into a dominant culture, another country, other languages, other food, all the rest, any other group of people who would move into a dominant culture would assimilate into that culture within three to four generations. But the Jews don't assimilate because they don't mix with Gentiles. You'll have a Jewish neighborhood, but you won't have intermingling. Well, you do today in the United States, for sure. And I was told by a very important rabbi up in Los Angeles that the greatest danger Jews face today in today's world, particularly in America, is not persecution. He said, we Jews are being loved to death. He said, the biggest danger is assimilation because many Jewish children, after they graduate from high school or college, marry non-Jews. A Jew is by definition a person born of a Jewish mother. So if you're a Jewish man and you marry a Gentile woman, your children are not Jews. And within a few generations, there'll be full assimilation. So Peter has never been in a Gentile home. Peter has never eaten Gentile food. He never had black ink linguine with lobster. But he invites them into the house to be his guests. Who would have thought? The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. And the following day, he arrived at Caesarea, again, 30 miles this time south to north. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his friends and relatives. 
And as Peter entered the house, now Peter himself is going into a Gentile house. Peter invited Gentiles in Simon Tanner's house, but now he's going in to a Gentile house. Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter said, please don't do that. Get up. I'm, I'm just a man like you. And talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Never mind, eat with him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. What was that whole reverie about the, with the sheet about? the clean and unclean animals. Well, symbolically, Jews and Gentiles all mix together in one kingdom, if you will. Huh, Peter thought about this. He says, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius then proceeds to recount the whole story of the angel speaking to him and so on. And Peter said, I'll be darned. While Peter was speaking to him and telling him about Jesus of Nazareth, while he was speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, Jewish believers who had come with Peter from Joppa were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And he did. Do you see what happened here? Up to this point, 100% of the people in the church were Jewish, 100%. Cornelius and his family are the first Gentiles to be brought into the church. It would never have occurred to Peter to do that or to any of the apostles to do that. The Holy Spirit had to do it. Well, I have to tell you that Peter had some splaining to do when he got back to Jerusalem. They were horrified that he had done such a thing. The apostles and brothers all throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had been, received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the, the Jewish believers, said, what, you did what? You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? What were you thinking? Peter then explained everything that happened and they all said, well, I'll be darned. Who would have thought? Gentiles have entered the church. To every single believer in Jerusalem and all those in the surrounding area, all Jewish, 100% of them, would never have imagined such a thing would happen. When they heard this, they had no further objections. They praised God and say, well, I'll be darned. God has granted even Gentiles repentance unto life. Who would ever have thought?
Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. We now have Gentiles in the church. Hmm. What a stunning moment that was. You know, and had that not happened, Christianity would have remained a very minor sect within Judaism. But with Gentiles now coming in, and they'll flood in later on after the Council of Jerusalem in AD 50, enabling the church to become a global enterprise. This is a fantastic moment. We'll be back on Friday, and we'll pick up our story at that point. Okay, thank you again for being with me. Good to be with all of you. Keep me in your prayers as I'll keep you in mine, and I will see you on Friday. Bye-bye now.